For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how to better care for a loved one living with Alzheimer's disease during the pandemic. Meet a local artist whose meticulous style holds a unique appeal. And youth crossing gender borders continues with the story of a family learning to understand what transgender means through the experience of their preschooler. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It is estimated that 20,000 people in Pima County alone live with Alzheimer's disease. For them, the COVID-19 pandemic is especially challenging. Most are at risk not only because of age, but also because memory loss makes it harder for them to follow safe practices. Elisa Ivanitskaya spoke with Morgan L. Hartford, the Southern Arizona Regional Director for the Alzheimer's Association Desert Southwest Chapter about steps that people with dementia and their caregivers can take to balance the risks of getting sick with coronavirus while getting the support they need to maintain a good quality of life. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to create these unanticipated challenges for people living with Alzheimer's and all other dementia and their families and their caregivers, things that they may not have had to consider before the U.S. was impacted. For example, families are having to choose whether they're going to bring paid help into the home or whether they're going to do that care on their own. Families that may have been bringing paid help into the home may have more concerns now about exposure from a healthcare worker coming into their house. So they may bear more of a burden of that caregiving directly. And we're talking about the over 346,000 unpaid dementia caregivers in Arizona. For people who don't have severe symptoms yet, how the care for them changed? One of the things that people may start to notice uh, throughout the pandemic is that they may be caring for a loved one who maybe needed some light support, um, maybe some help with reminders. Maybe they're having some, some real mild symptoms of Alzheimer's or dementia, memory loss. And now maybe those symptoms are more noticeable. Often people reach out to the Alzheimer's Association for support. And we're finding that we're getting questions about diagnosis, possible symptoms of dementia that family members maybe didn't recognize or notice before the pandemic. The Alzheimer's Association is a great source to be able to provide that help and and understanding those warning signs of Alzheimer's and then connecting families to support groups. The Alzheimer's Association offers telephonic support groups in English and Spanish, as well as a number of online resources, education services, online chat services as well, where people can connect together. So these groups are for family members, for caregivers, not for people with Alzheimer's. We do serve people with dementia and their caregivers. Many of our resources are for family caregivers, but we also have early stage social engagement activities, whether that's early stage telephone support group calls or connecting people with online activities where they can connect to 
both together and with resources in the community during COVID-19. When I read the advice that you usually give to people with Alzheimer's, a lot of these things are limited during the pandemic because we can't go out and socialize. How do you suggest to adapt? That's a great question. Living with Alzheimer's and COVID-19 and trying to increase access to socialization, for example, which we know is really important for quality of life and maintaining brain health and cognition over time becomes much more challenging when isolation is taking place. So what we're encouraging families to do as much as possible is to stay connected virtually if they have the option to do that. Maybe it's a telephone call with a family member or friend on a regular basis. We know routine is really important for people with dementia. So keeping a regular routine and building in some social activities with others via phone or internet when possible, it can be really helpful. Not everyone receives care at home. Many people are in mental care facilities. We know that not everybody is impacted equally with Alzheimer's disease. And because of that, we also know that they're not impacted by COVID-19 in the same way. We know that Black communities are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's disease than their white counterparts, and our Latinx communities are one and a half times more likely than their white counterparts to have Alzheimer's, which also means that they may need and may have a higher prevalence of care in long-term care facilities. That puts them to higher risk for COVID-19 as well. So the considerations for loved ones living in long-term care can be really stressful for the families that are there. Some families during COVID-19 actually try to keep their loved one at home maybe longer than they may be wanted to. They were planning for long-term care and decided not to, dealing with those challenges at home. For family caregivers with loved ones in long-term care communities, we know that that social isolation has been a really difficult thing to overcome. Similarly, we encourage family caregivers to reach out to their long-term care facility staff, ask for frequent updates, try to do those internet calls, or even visit through windows. We've seen that happen a little bit as well. Do you know about any outbreaks in long-term care facilities in Arizona? We have seen some outbreaks throughout southern Arizona, and it can present real challenges in, number one, loved one's ability to visit and stay connected with their family member, but certainly further increase the risk of transmission in between residents. Okay, if a family member in long-term care just uh, learns that there was the COVID-19 case, what questions should the family ask themselves? Family members should be asking what the procedures are, number one, for managing COVID-19 risk in long-term care communities. They should ask the staff there what the procedures are for managing COVID-19. Make sure that they have all of your emergency contact information, or that of another family member as backup in case your loved one needs to go to the hospital or needs some kind of medical intervention. We want to make sure that family members know if there's been any signs or symptoms of illness in their loved one or themselves before they go to visit. That's really important as well, really monitoring those symptoms. With that, asking that the care facility make sure that they provide updates to family members regularly. And of course, Testing is really critical as well. So if there is an outbreak, it's important for families to know that 
And of course, if their loved one's infected with COVID-19, it's really important to communicate that to family members and for family members to be empowered to ask. Please forgive my ignorance. I still wonder if memories are lost. What's left from the personality? Because it feels like our identity consists of our experiences and our ideas about ourselves. Yeah, and it's a philosophical question that for us at the Alzheimer's Association, for all the families that are caring for a person with dementia, we know that a person is more than just our memories. We have all sorts of things that shape us. And certainly being able to recall those memories are often an important or part of who we consider ourselves to be. But we also have all these other preferences and aspects of ourself and identity that go beyond just our memories. And we encourage family members to try to tap into all of those senses to help bring a person out, um, even if they don't have explicit recall about those memories. And again, returning to the COVID, the COVID made um, even healthy people reconsider their daily routines with washing hands, wearing masks, planning meal preparations to eliminate unnecessary grocery shopping and having less exposure as possible. So what are the unique challenges for people with Alzheimer's? Some of the things that people with Alzheimer's dealing with during COVID-19 are just remembering that this is happening. We know that there are people out there and an increasing number of people living with Alzheimer's disease alone because they may carry on with their normal routine without thinking about putting a mask on or washing their hands as much. So it puts a great burden on family members to do constant reminders, often written reminders for their family members. The other part for people with Alzheimer's disease is that being exposed to the news about COVID-19 and the stress, the collective stress that we're all experiencing can certainly increase dementia-related behaviors like agitation, increased confusion that family caregivers have to deal with. So caregivers often have to try to manage any outside stimulus as well for people with Alzheimer's, so to keep them calm and safe and happy as possible. Alisa Ivanitskaya spoke with Morgan L. Hartford, the Southern Arizona Regional Director for the Alzheimer's Association Desert Southwest Chapter. You can find a link and their hotline number at azpm.org. The focus of Albert Chamillard's art is pen and ink drawings of large geometrical shapes. But these representations are composed of hundreds of thousands of tiny hand-drawn lines. Cross-hatching is a meticulous approach, but it's one that Chamillard finds both solace and creative satisfaction in doing. And an appreciative audience online seems to find these qualities reflected in the drawings. We'll find out more about his personal process next in this story produced by Andrew Brown. It was problem solving. I wanted to make work that didn't look like everything else. And how do you do that as an artist? How do you make work that's yours and doesn't, doesn't look like all the other stuff that's out there? I've always drawn since I was like three years old. I was the youngest of four, and that was kind of what we did for entertainment. 
And I never stopped. I just never stopped drawing. Eventually went to school, got a degree in art for it. Even though I experimented with printmaking and painting and some sculpture stuff, I always ended up back at drawing. And that's kind of how I think of myself as an artist, a drawing artist. That's all really I'm interested in. Several things happened. I became a dad, and when my first daughter was born, it was harder for me to work in a studio, so I had to make work that I could do at home, smaller scale, and so I started working in small books and would just draw compulsively, just night after night after night. I knew I liked process work. I liked the kind of long hours to put into a drawing especially because that was another problem. Most people think of drawing as a sketch, kind of quick, loose. I wanted something that was developed and time-consuming. Cross-hatching is a drawing technique that, I don't even know how old it is, I, I guess I think of stuff from 300 years ago, printmakers using it. Hatching is a single layer of lines that's almost in a herringbone pattern that goes back and forth, just so I can differentiate. Cross-hatching is when you add additional layers to that. So that's one layer, that's two layers, that's three layers. I remember showing work as an artist before Instagram. You'd be lucky to have people in your town know who you were. And so it is gratifying and awesome to have people all over the world write to me and tell me how much my, they love my work and that kind of thing. It's definitely, it's a new paradigm for artists. Tucson's a great place to be an artist and to make work. I think it's a hard place to survive on sales of your work. The reason I can't just move to another mid-sized city that's comparable has to do with the light. Walking out to your backyard and looking at a bush, that's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see blasting highlight, a very small mid-range and a very black shadow. And that's the first thing I notice when I go anywhere else is everything's just weaker. Can't reproduce this anywhere. My studio is located in the East Hive. This is quintessential Tucson in a weird kind of way. An abandoned office complex behind the mall is about as Tucson as you can get. It's an amazing space and I love it here. One of the problems, like I was talking about earlier, to solve is how to use good quality materials without having to buy necessarily the expensive art stuff. I'd love to describe the pen. I love it. It's a Pilot G2. Even though these are pretty easily available, they're not too expensive. It uses an archival gel ink that's fantastic. They have no fade. I've written some notes to the pilot company, but they're not responding to me, they're ignoring me. <laughs> so sometimes I tag them on Instagram and stuff. This is a typical ledger I use. It's just an old, antique, pretty commonly found ledger from the 1920s. A lot of old ledgers use great paper. I had a friend about 10 years ago send me a lined ledger, a blank one. So I started sketching and working in it. And right away, I was like, this is something I like. I like how this looks. I like how I can place images on this paper. And I'd find all the places where there's blank pages and just start filling them in. More sketches, ideas that I did and didn't like. I like the completed book. And it's very intimate to sit there and to look through a book and to look through drawings. 
but then I really like seeing them like this too. And I like where you can back up a little bit, you can kind of breathe them in a little bit differently. And at first I was doing figurative work, I was drawing whales, and, and then I decided just to move down to really basic imagery, just shapes, triangles, squares, circles, and that kind of thing. And then over the past few years, it started to develop more into three-dimensional space and how to achieve that using the same technique of just cross-hatching. Another problem that I had to, I had to answer. It's not meditative. I think a lot of people ask me that, is it meditative to make? And I don't, it's not. It's meditative maybe to look at. You can look at it and imagine putting all that work into it. But when I'm doing it, I'm very aware, I'm very kind of in my moment, and my mind is racing with thoughts. Everything in my life is in these drawings, all of it. It's, you know, fear and worry and happiness and hope. All of it goes into it. I love being an artist, so doing this is kind of like it feels great to be engaged. And when you're doing it day after day after day, it's, I don't know, something happens. It's not just me making my art for all artists, I think. If you're in a daily practice, that act opens your mind up to, to, to making better art. Andrew Brown produced his profile of Albert Chamillard for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the TV story on our website at azpm.org. And now in the second in a five-part series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. Explore the landscape of young people and gender identity with contributing producer Laura Markowitz. She talks to teens, parents, and experts on the forefront of understanding. Is it a boy or a girl? That's the first thing people want to know about a baby. By age three, most children develop their own internal sense of gender identity. When that inner identity is a mismatch with their biology, the experience can be confusing and challenging not only for the child, but for the entire family. Laura Markowitz has the story. It's a hot Saturday morning as Tucson prepares for its annual Pride Festival. Under the shade of a few scrawny mesquite trees, a couple is watching their three young children dash around excitedly. I'm Gary. And Susie, and we have a five-year-old transgender daughter named Zoe. Those are not their real names. They live in a small town in rural Arizona, and they don't feel safe coming out about having a transgender child. From a young age, uh, Zoe always exhibited, was born a boy, but always exhibited really feminine behavior. And we didn't really know what was going on at the time. Uh, Zoe was constantly wanting the girl version of things. So she didn't want to wear all the boy clothes that I had and would sometimes refuse to get dressed. It was a battle in the morning. Her Christmas list last year was 10 dresses, high heels, purses, and roller skates. We thought maybe we had a gay son. Because we just didn't know. I think our daughter is really the first trans person that we've ever really known. So she's teaching us a lot. Zoe runs over to say hello. She's wearing a dress with red and white stripes. Are you in school? Kindergarten. What's your favorite thing to do? Um, doing worksheets. The transition wasn't necessarily so much of a stretch for me in terms of, well, I'm not going to have that pro football player anymore. It was more of a stretch of, it was just so foreign. It was a loss still in a way. Like, we have all these pictures of her when we would dress her as a boy because that's what we thought she was. 
And sometimes it's sad to look at that and be like, oh, where did my little boy go? But really, she's just always been a girl and she just couldn't tell us. Yeah, that's a big thing. Once she could articulate what she wanted, uh, that made it really clear. Listeners might think, well, this child is five. How would a five-year-old know? Our other kids, they always knew. Like our oldest, he's a boy and he, he feels like a boy and he knows he's a boy. And our middle child's a girl and she feels like a girl. I mean, she's not super girly, but she, our youngest is more girly. But she feels like a girl and she knows she's a girl. So, I mean, if they can know, why can't Zoe? But she had to explain what transgender is to her older kids. Zoe's sister was confused at first that her little brother was actually her little sister. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on, but mom checked a book out from the library and I understood then. Zoe's brother says he wasn't all that surprised. Um, it was definitely okay and it felt like she was my sister all along. Do you think kids can be mean about this? Some can. I should protect her. I really should. If the schools and the community would teach about gender and sexuality so that the kids didn't think it was something odd, that more people would be supportive because they would know to be supportive. Parents of transgender children have more than the usual trepidations about how the world is going to treat their child. So last year when she went to preschool, she started there as a boy, and she wasn't comfortable um, transitioning to a girl at school. So she would be a boy at school and everywhere else be a girl. That was her decision? That was her decision. Was it because she was afraid of being teased? Yes. She was afraid of, there was a couple of girls she went to preschool with in particular that she said would tell her she wasn't a real girl. You know, I asked her, what about for kindergarten? You'll, you won't have any of the same kids in your class. And she said she wanted to be a girl. So we met with the principal where she was going to be going to kindergarten. And we explained the situation. Um, and they were on board. They are like, yeah, she can have a girl name. She can use the girl's bathroom. She can be a girl at school. No issues. And it's been good so far. Do they worry that they're making a mistake by supporting Zoe to live as a girl? What if later in life she decides, no, she's really a boy? One thing one of the doctors told us when we went was, the worst that's going to happen, let's say in two years, your daughter decides that, nope, it was a phase, they want to be a boy. Which I don't think is going to happen, but let's say that does happen, right? The worst that you did was show your child that you're going to support them no matter what. That doctor was Andrew Cronin. He's a pediatrician and co-founder of El Rio Community Health Center's Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Youth Program. Honestly, the thing a lot of people don't understand is there is nothing we do that's irreversible until late puberty. No one does surgery before 18 years old. In a six-year-old, all I'm doing is calling them by the name they want to be called by, the pronouns they want to have used. And I think it's a really common misconception that like a six-year-old comes in and yesterday they told their parents, I think I'd like to be a boy, and they come and we do surgery and give them hormones at six, and we don't. Cronin has been a pediatrician for 20 years, but he says it's only in the last five years that he started to understand how to help trans kids and their families. I came into this thinking this was, you know, parents coddling their children and children choosing a gender. 
and I started meeting the kids and then I started looking at my own like the way I looked at things compared to what I know medically and scientifically and realizing that I was completely wrong. There are an estimated 1.4 million adults in the U.S. who identify as transgender. But it's unknown how many young children are transgender. Andrew Cronin believes that increasing visibility in society is leading parents to recognize the signs in their children at younger ages. No parent ever comes in saying, I expected my child to be transgender, I wanted a child with gender dysphoria. All that parents want is their kid to be loved and to be safe and to be accepted. That's true for Zoe's parents. At the same time, they're also grateful that their family is on this journey. Even if our daughter decided to go back to a boy, I think we would stay ingrained in this culture because these are people, right? And it's so sad that they're marginalized right now. And we're now a member of that marginalized group through our child. And I was telling my wife, it's so unfortunate that it took our child being trans for us to be aware of this. Yeah, it's gonna open our eyes. I mean, we're totally on board to support not only our kid, but everybody else in the community. The floats are assembled and the march is about to begin. Zoe skips into line behind a group of kids wearing rainbow angel wings. She's clutching a picture that she drew of a rainbow heart and a heart with pink, blue, and white, which are the colors of the transgender flag. She waves them in the air and joins the parade. Her family is right behind her. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. The music for this series was written and performed by Noah James. For more information about support groups for parents of transgender children, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And tune in next week for episode three of Youth Crossing Gender Borders. Being a teenager, sometimes things are very intense. And we've got to help you guys live through that. Like, you hear the statistics, and it's just terrifying. For God's sake, don't be a statistic. Coming out as transgender can be lonely and frightening. Even the most loving parents can't understand what it's like. So one Tucson trans boy decided to interview an adult transgender man to find out what the future might be like. Transgenerational advice, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.